scripture again. It's just too intense and incredible not to uh, read all of it once more. Last week, we focused on the first six verses, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Today, we're going to focus on the back half of the chapter, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15, but these two really fit together. So I'll read the whole thing for us, but um, I want to share, um, I'm aware, um, even before we started this series, but, but certainly uh, after last week's message, um, that the book of Revelation is, is often uh, used in a really uh, unique and I think unhelpful way uh, in comparison to uh, a lot of the rest of the books of the Bible. So oftentimes what happens is, is we take the book of Revelation and a lot of things that are said here, and we kind of use it as a grid over contemporary events going on in culture. And we say, oh, this thing's happening in, in Russia, and I line up something that's in the book of Revelation, and I kind of draw these one-to-one matchups. So for instance, I did some of this Bible coding for you guys last week. Not that it has any legitimacy, but I just wanted to give you kind of an example of what happens. Um, the way the book of Revelation can be used as kind of a decoder. Um, so I, I shared with you guys last week um, that Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then I shared about Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, that I watched this documentary, and that he was sentenced to 15 life sentences for his murders. And that adds up to about a thousand years. And so I got, uh-huh, okay, so maybe, maybe Jeffrey Dahmer is Satan or satanic in some, in some way because he was in prison for a thousand years, Satan was in prison for a thousand years. Doing that thing is a lot of fun, but I'm not sure it's true or really helpful ultimately. But we do that thing all the time with the book of Revelation. And, and you know, the thing is, is it changes over the years. You know, in the 80s, it was, it was Gorbachev who was, you know, the, the Antichrist. And now, you know, 30 years later, it, it's Putin, you know. So both of these things can't be right, right? And so this is ultimately a really unhelpful way to use Revelation as sort of this decoder ring or this decipher for things going on in culture. It's tempting to do so. It's fun to do so, but it leads to a lot of speculation, a lot of conjecture. And so my encouragement to us is to read Revelation on its own terms. Let it interpret itself. Let's understand it as it stands, as opposed to taking cultural events and kind of overlaying them on top of the text. Um, and using it as a kind of a decoder ring. Um, and if we do so, if we understand Revelation on its own terms, it is apocalyptic literature, yes. So there's a lot of crazy stuff and can make it tempting to want to make these connections to stuff in the world. Um, it's prophetic literature. It's apocalyptic. It's prophetic. But I also want to encourage us to understand it as a narrative. It has a plot. It has a start, a beginning, and an end. It stands on its own, I think, really helpfully, as a narrative. And so we're going to look at some of that as we get into this morning's sermon. Okay, so Revelation chapter 20, all 15 verses. I'll read them for us. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and holding in his hand a great chain. The angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and the angel bound Satan for a thousand years and threw Satan into the bottomless pit, shut the pit, 
sealed the pit over him so that Satan might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, Satan must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on the thrones were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, those who had not received the beast's mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather the nations for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And the satanic armies of the nations marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed the satanic army, and the devil who had deceived the nations was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on the throne. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them to hide. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who gets the last word? Who gets the last word? So in a court of law, for example, as a trial takes place, the prosecution lays out their case. The defense also argues their side. There's then legal reporters in the media who share their thoughts on what should happen. But the last word, and the only word that matters, belongs to the jury. Or in the job hunting process, as you're looking for a new position in work, you with your resume lay out all your experiences you talk about all your accomplishments. You answer all the interview questions with poise and substance. Then your references also vouch for you. But the final word in this process, and the only word that matters, belongs to the employer. Or in a competitive matchup between two sports teams as they're facing off in a game, the fans will talk smack to each other. The odds makers give their opinion on what the outcome will be. The TV analysts, talking heads, share their prediction. But the last word 
And the only word that matters is on the scoreboard, the final score. And what we see in today's passage, friends, is that God gets the final word on sin and evil. So in order to renew the world, God must rid the world of what's ruined it. The powers of darkness have done a number on God's good creation. The forces of evil have wrought tragedy after tragedy after tragedy throughout our history. But this morning, we see that despite the damage it's done, God gets the only word that matters against sin and evil. God gets the final word. So previously, as I mentioned to you guys, the book of Revelation is a story. I do think it's accurate to describe this book of the Bible that way, as a narrative. For sure, it is a different kind of story because of the apocalyptic and prophetic nature of it as well. And one aspect of narrative literature is that it has characters. So there are protagonists, the heroes, and there are antagonists, the villains. And within the book of Revelation, there are a few key antagonists or villains who show up. So first, there is Babylon, which is emblematic of the corrupt nations of the world. Next, there is the beast and the false prophet, which are agents of Satan sent to persecute and corrupt the church. And then finally, there's Satan himself, and starting in Revelation chapter 17, up through our passage today, we see how God systematically dismantles this hierarchy of hell. So in chapter 17 through the first half of chapter 19, John describes the destruction of Babylon when the city is thrown into the heart of the sea as a millstone. Then in the second half of chapter 19, John describes the destruction of the beast and the false prophet when Jesus captures the beast and the false prophet, throwing them into the lake of fire. And then in today's passage, we witness the finished work of God's judgment against the powers of darkness. Babylon is fallen, the beast is captured, the false prophet is silenced, but after today's passage, God's work of judgment is complete, and he speaks the last word against the forces of sin and evil. So how does this happen? And who are the objects of God's final acts of judgment? First, we're going to see John describe how Satan is defeated. Satan is defeated. So previously in chapter 20, John noted how Satan was bound for a thousand years, restricting his ability to deceive the nations. But here, starting in verse 7, Satan is released from prison. And ideally, when a prisoner finishes his sentence and is allowed to go free, there's a sense of gratitude and obedience on the part of the newly freed prisoner. The hope is that the prisoner is reformed through their experience of punishment and that they've learned from suffering the consequences of their misbehavior. But that is not at all the case with what we see in Satan. In verse 7, he's released from prison, and in verse 8, he's immediately off to deceive the nations and turn them against God. So Satan's actions here speak to how terribly hardened his heart is toward God. He was in prison for a thousand years. And I shared with you guys last week, my sense is that these thousand years are symbolic of the thoroughness 
of Satan's imprisonment. So 10, you remember, is a number often signifying completeness or wholeness. You think of the Ten Commandments, which begin and are a summary of the whole Mosaic law. Or you think about the ten plagues against Egypt. When God was freeing his people from Exodus, it took ten plagues to be a sufficient amount to cause Pharaoh to let God's people go. Ten communicates completeness. Well, Satan was imprisoned ten to the power of three years. For 10 times 10 times 10 years, a really thorough amount of time, and yet, after he's released, his, star, his heart is still completely stone cold towards God. So Satan heads out to the four corners of the earth to deceive the nations and gather them for battle against God's people, and his, his recruiting efforts seem to be very successful because John says that the deceived nations were as the sand of the seashore. In other words, there was a lot of them. And he refers to them as Gog and Magog. These are two names of God's enemies from the Old Testament, especially from the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39 of that prophecy. Well, in these verses in Revelation, God, Gog and Magog seem to be representative of the collective nations who gathered with Satan against God. And in verse 9, we find out that they required the broad plain of the earth to make their way towards this battle. And this seems to indicate, again, how many of them there were. They required a large area to travel because they were such a large army. And then John tells us that they surround the camp of the saints. They surround the beloved city of God's people. So an example of this from one of the most intense and brutal films I've ever watched, it's a movie called Lone Survivor. And I started to think to myself, man, last week after telling you guys about the Jeffrey Dahmer documentary I watched and now telling you about Lone Survivor, I'm like, man, what is wrong with me? Like, <laughs> watch Mr. Rogers for a while or something. <laughs> but anyway, I watch Lone Survivor, and it's a true story about four Navy SEALs on a mission in Afghanistan. These soldiers are on a special ops mission to destroy an enemy target in an Afghani village. But by a fluke, I mean by total dumb luck, their position is given away, and they immediately have to flee. But Sure enough, because their position was given away, Taliban soldiers are soon hot on their tails. And at first, they beat these soldiers back, but the Taliban soldiers just keep coming and coming and coming. And eventually, the four soldiers are what's called penned down. They are outnumbered, they are outmaneuvered, and they are outgunned by their enemy. Well, that's not too unlike what John describes here. Satan's armies are likened to the sand of the sea, and his armies come from the four corners of the earth, presumably telling us they are coming from all four directions surrounding God's people. But though like those soldiers in the movie, God's people here are outnumbered and they are outmaneuvered, they are not outgunned. Just when Satan's armies were knocking on the door in the middle of verse 9, John says, fire came down from heaven and consumed Satan's army. 
So we get no indication here that God's people have any part to play in this battle. This is a completely sovereign, one-sided act of God, and Satan's armies are consumed in mere moments. And then right away, one verse later, God says, enough is enough. This is the last word for you, Satan. And in verse 10, God casts him into the lake of fire right alongside the beast and the false prophet. And church, this is the end of the end for Satan. He is not mentioned even once more in the rest of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9 is the last time Satan is mentioned in all of Scripture. So follower of Jesus, receive the encouragement that your spiritual enemy loses. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the apostle Paul says to us that we as believers in Christ, quote, do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Instead, we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, end quote. That's your enemy. And a lot of us have been engaged in this struggle for a long time. A lot of you have been standing firm in the Lord, walking in the Spirit, taking up the sword of the Spirit, resisting the devil's schemes, fighting his lies. For many of us, it's been a long, exhausting battle with way more setbacks than we'd wish. But what John is encouraging us, with, encouraging us here with is the good news that our enemy loses. We may feel pinned down during times of spiritual warfare. We may feel pinned down during times of spiritual attack, but John says Satan will be defeated. Our enemy loses in the end. So as a college football fan, here's what I've experienced, and I've heard many others say the same about themselves. It is not enough for my team to win. I also need my rival to lose, right? Like you Wolverine fans, when you're checking the scores on a Saturday afternoon in the fall, you're not just checking if U of M won. It's just automatic. You also see if Ohio State lost. And if they did, there's this sweet satisfaction, and you're like, yes, losers. <laughs> because it's not enough to be pro-Wolverine. You also have to be anti-Buckeye. It's the same thing here in Revelation 20. John wants us to receive the encouragement, receive the sweet satisfaction that your enemy loses. The one who has held the lure of sin in front of you for decades the one who has ruined relationships with people you love, the one who has filled your heart with suffocating shame, he will lose in the end. And we will say, yes, loser! We are going to rub it in his face with all the joy that you U of M fans have had the last couple of years right before Thanksgiving. Makes a good Thanksgiving, doesn't it? 
So who and what are the objects of God's final acts of judgment? First, we saw Satan is defeated. Next, we're going to see sin is judged. Sin is judged. So after John's vision of Satan being cast in the lake of fire, he next sees a great white throne. And he refers to the person sitting on the throne. It's like he can't even say his name. It's like Voldemort in Harry Potter. There's such a fear. There's such an awe. It is him who must not be named. That's how John is as he looks at this great white throne. I saw the throne, and shuddering, he's like, I saw him who was sitting on the throne. Doesn't say their name. We can easily assume that it is God generally, perhaps Jesus specifically. Either way, the greatness of this throne signifies ultimate authority. The majesty and glory of this throne is so terrifying that John says, Earth and sky attempt to flee from its presence, but there's nowhere for it to go. Can't hide. And again, this demonstrates the infinitely vast authority of him who sits on his throne. Nothing can escape his gaze. It's what happens when people know they're about to be judged. They run. We hide, but it ain't happening here. Because the one who sits on the throne is too great. John then said he sees standing before this throne every person ever. He says all the dead, both great and small, are standing before this throne. In other words, people of great wealth, people of small wealth, people of great fame, people of no fame, people of great intelligence, people of small intelligence. Though they may have had all these differences in life, they are alike all together before this great white throne. And to emphasize his point further, John says in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And so again, this is communicating the point that no one is exempt from the crowd standing before this throne. So death and Hades were thought to be the realm of the dead, And then also there was this legend that those who died at sea didn't actually go to death in Hades because the sea was a realm for the dead of its own. But again, John's point is the same as before. No matter your societal status in life, whether great or small, no matter the realm of death you exist in, whether Hades or the sea, no one in the history of all humanity is exempt from this crowd of people before the great white throne. So I wonder, what's the largest crowd of people that you've ever seen or been in? Maybe you've been to a Lions game at at Ford Field. It's about 65,000 people. Or if you went to the Taylor Swift concert at Ford Field last couple of days, that was about 85,000 people because they got more fans onto the field. What's the greatest crowd that you've ever seen or been a part of. I'm not completely sure for me, but I think it was probably October 2004, Knoxville, Tennessee, Auburn University versus the University of Tennessee football game. And I am sorry, guys, if you're not a football person, but this is just who I am. Um, (laughs) Talked about Wolverines before, talking about my team now. 
Um, I don't do this on purpose. Like, oh, I think football's so cool. It's just the only thing I know. And so when sermon illustrations come, it's about football. But anyway, October 2004, Auburn versus Tennessee, Nayland Stadium, over 100,000 people in one spot. My seats were pretty far up, not nosebleeds, but pretty far up. And I remember looking out at this crowd and thinking, man, this is a lot of people. It feels like every person in the state of Tennessee is right here. No one is not here. Just people on top of people, this sea of humanity. Well, John is saying here in this vision, no, literally, no one is not here. This is the sea of all humanity. It doesn't just feel like all of humanity. All of humanity is, in fact, right here before the throne. And what is this enormous crowd there for before the throne? John tells us that they're there for judgment. Again, verse 13 says that the sea and death and Hades, they gave up all the dead. And then the dead were judged. Each one of them were judged according to what they had done. So the previous scene we looked at was a scene of battle. When Satan's armies surrounded God's people, God fired down on them, defeating them. But this is not a scene from a battlefield. This is a scene from a courtroom. From the previous scene, we learned that God is going to defeat the cosmic forces of evil, like Satan. But he is also going to accomplish individual accountability for every human ever. And to accomplish this task of judgment, John describes that there are two books which are opened. The first book opened contains the actions of individuals by which we are judged. And then John mentions in verse 15 that the second book doesn't contain actions so much as it contains names. The second book is called the book of life. This book is mentioned six times throughout the book of Revelation. And what we learn about this book here in Revelation 20 is that those whose names are written in the book of life, those people are not thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone else upon God's judgment, does suffer that fate. But those whose names are written in the book of life are not thrown into the lake of fire. And so that begs the question, who in the heck's names are written in the book of life? And how did they get there? Well, an important clue is what this book is called later in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. In that verse... The book of life is not simply called the book of life. Instead, it's called the Lamb's book of life. This, of course, being Jesus who died as a sacrificial lamb on the cross in the place of sinners. So that, friends, is whose names are written in the book of life. It's those who are trusting in the Lamb, Christ Jesus, and trusting in what he did for us as he sacrificed himself on the cross. Our names, hallelujah, are written in the book of life because he already suffered God's judgment on our behalf. So what we're learning here, friends, is that there are two ways that your sin can be judged. First, your sin can be judged before the great white throne that John describes here. 
During that time, all of humanity, each one of us individually, will face divine scrutiny for our actions. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 that for every even careless word we've spoken, we will be held accountable for on the day of judgment. That's the first option for where and when our sin can be judged. The other option, the second option, is that our sin can be judged on the cross of Christ. He endured God's fiery wrath so that we wouldn't have to. God's holy and righteous white-hot fury against sin was unleashed upon Jesus so that when you trust in him, there is no more judgment left for you. Jesus already paid the price. Jesus already suffered your penalty. He's already endured the curse of God's law on your behalf. So if you trust in him, if you trust in the Lamb of God, then when you stand before God at the great white throne judgment, your name will be found in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's final word on sin. It will be judged. All of it will be judged, either before his throne on the day of judgment or on the cross of Christ where he died for sinners. And so I call on you, find freedom from sin's penalty by trusting in Jesus. You can ensure that your name will be found in the book of life by trusting in the Savior. It does not matter if your book of sins is a thousand pages long. It does not matter if your book of sins is filled with filth. The grace of Christ, the cross of Christ is sufficient to blot out and throw away all of it and for your name to be written clearly and securely in his book of life. The grossest, the filthiest, the greatest sins can be wiped away. Because here's the truth, church. There is more grace in God than there is sin in your life. Now, you may be thinking, like, I don't know, buddy. Like, I got a big book of failures. And I'm still writing it. This is the gospel. There is more grace in God than there is sin in your life. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You want to try to out-sin God's grace? It ain't happening. Yes, God is just, and he will have the final word against sin. But if you trust in him, if you receive Jesus, there is an everlasting flow of mercy that is for you that is for you. Find freedom from sin's penalty so that on the day of judgment, you will be happy as a blue jay because your penalty served. Your penalty's been handed down to Christ. How does God share the final word on evil? He defeats Satan. He judges sin. Finally, he destroys death. In the end, he destroys even death itself. 
So throughout the book of Revelation, death and Hades are mentioned as a pair four different times. In chapter 1, death and Hades are said to be the place to which Jesus has the keys. And that's what we're seeing him do right here. He is unlocking death and Hades. That's the first time death and Hades is mentioned. It's the place to which Jesus has the key, unlocking and freeing those who are captive. Then in chapter 6, Death and Hades are pictured as soldiers riding war horses, wielding swords, slaying wide swaths of humanity with pestilence and famine. Then in our passage today, for a third time, death and Hades are mentioned in verse 13. They're mentioned again as a realm of the dead, where the dead reside until judgment. God forces death and Hades to give up their dead so that they can face judgment. But now in verse 14, not only are the dead judged, but death and Hades itself are judged. So I mentioned before that my favorite college football team is Auburn. Here we go again. Sorry. <laughs> this is when I meant to issue the apology for all the college football, but I forgot there's actually more. Forgive me. I didn't write that in my notes to apologize, but more football. <laughs> so I mentioned my favorite college football team is the Auburn Tigers. And what that means is, as an Auburn fan, it means that I have, I have had to make peace with the fact that our two greatest rivals, the universities of Georgia and Alabama, our two greatest rivals are the two best teams in the country. So I have just had to make peace with the fact that Auburn is going to really struggle to be champions because our greatest rivals, our biggest enemies are so good. And no doubt, you guys can relate, because over the years, you all being from Detroit area and being fans of the Lions, you have had to similarly come to terms <laughs> with the truth that, hey, the Packers are just better than us. You got to make peace with yourself or you're going to be miserable. You're going to let yourself down. I know they just lost Aaron Rodgers. Everybody thinks we're doing great. Don't do it. Make peace with the fact that your rival your enemy is going to beat you. And it's one thing now to make peace with your rival sports team, whatever, no big deal. But it is an altogether different problem to make peace with death. And my fear is that far too many of us do just that. We just come to terms with the fact that, oh, well, we're going to die. There's nothing I can do about it. Like the famous theologian, he's also from Alabama and a college football player, Forrest Gump. He has a line in his movie. He has a line in his movie where he says, dying's just a part of living. In other words, death is normal. Death is just what we have to do. Let's just surrender to that reality. But church, this is a completely unbiblical and anti-gospel perspective. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle calls death our last enemy. Death is not neutral. Death is certainly not a blessing. It's our enemy. It is God's enemy. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, we see here that God does not surrender to this enemy. God does not make peace with this enemy. He doesn't come to terms with the enemy. No, he destroys the enemy. Death and Hades are plunged into the lake of fire forever. 
Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, just a few verses later, it's one of the most beautiful, most famous verses in all of Revelation. John says, God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people, and death shall be no more. And this is the reason that death will be no more. Because death is eternally submerged under the blazing waters of God's wrath in the lake of fire. Death will be no more because death gets what coming to it. Brothers and sisters, this is the last word on Satan, sin, and death. This is God's authoritative word, his final word on the forces of evil and darkness in our world. Church, God wants you to know that not only do we win, but our enemy loses. Receive this hope, receive this encouragement of knowing Satan will be defeated, sin will face justice, and death will be destroyed. Receive that truth. Live in the knowledge of what is to come for our enemy, for our sin, and for death itself. And if you are not following Jesus, if you have not trusted in Christ yet, I want to encourage you. On that day, there will be nowhere to hide. Earth and sky will try to flee, but there will be nowhere found for them because the divine scrutiny of God's judgment will find us out. There will be no place to hide. But as we sang earlier, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. There will not be a place to hide in the end, but there is a place to hide right now. And it is in the shadow of the cross of Christ. He will receive you. You come to Jesus and take refuge in him, and his mercy and grace is enough. And it will be written over the banner of your life. There is therefore now no condemnation for him who is in Christ Jesus. You will be safe from final condemnation because on the cross, Jesus was condemned in your place. Take refuge in him, and on the day of judgment, you will be happy as a lark. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God.